Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking to William Towns. William is a postdoc at Princeton University. And we will be talking about his method of uh, dimensionality reduction for single-cell RNA-seq data. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Roman. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Tell us how you became interested in single-cell RNA sequencing, and uh, how did you notice uh, that something is missing in this very crowded space of single-cell RNA-seq analysis? Sure. Well, first of all, um, I had a very uh, windy path to uh, bioinformatics and biostatistics. My, my PhD is in biostatistics. I started out studying tropical ecology and botany and uh, shifted into software testing and worked for about six years as a contractor for the Environmental Protection Agency. And then I ended up you know, deciding to make a change and pursue a PhD and focus on um, biomedical data analysis and biostatistics. But I never thought that I would be able to actually do research or, you know, complete my program. I just saw it as a way to get paid to learn some cool new ideas and to meet some interesting, smart people. So I was shocked that I actually passed the qualifying exam and had to choose a thesis topic. And I did not know what RNA-seq was when I got into grad school. In fact, I took a class in undergrad called Modern Genetic Analysis. And the hottest topic was uh, the human sequencing of the human genome. And we, we barely touched on microarrays. So that was about 2006 or 2007 when I graduated from college. So you can imagine, you know, having been away from biology for several years, coming in and hearing about ChIP-seq and RNA-seq and single cell and CRISPR was coming out, you know, about halfway through my PhD. So it was just kind of overwhelming. So I, I was very lucky to do a rotation with a professor named Martin Ari, who uh, is primarily in the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, he was really a great person to work with, um, kind of introduced me to single-cell RNA-seq and got me playing with some data, doing some exploratory and looking at just really quality control issues and very basic stuff. Um, and then I he introduced me to... Um, Rafa Irizari, who eventually became my thesis advisor. And um, at the time, Rafa had a postdoc named Stephanie Hicks, who I started working with very closely. And Stephanie was really a, a great mentor for me and helped me believe that I actually could um, make a contribution to what's a pretty uh, fast-moving field. And um, she helped me get up to speed and helped me think of some interesting topics. And she had been studying this phenomenon of the correlation between the first principal component and the fraction of zeros. Let's explain it in a bit more detail. So she was performing PCA, right, on single cell 
RNA-seq data. So how does that work and what's it used for? And uh, yeah, well, maybe explain a bit more about that correlation. Sure. Well, the standard procedure around that time, I would say that was probably 2015, 2016. Most of the single-cell RNA-seq data were from protocols like SmartSeq, um, where you don't have unique molecular identifiers. You don't have UMIs. Um, so you're looking at read counts um, from a relatively small number of cells, um, and it's the sequencing is fairly deep. So you, you would detect a lot more genes in these data compared to uh, like a 10x droplet um, data set. So what she was doing was just basically searching for sources of bias and um, systematic biases because I really don't know why she decided to search for these biases. I think basically Rafa just really didn't trust a lot of the results that were coming out from these data because they are so noisy. And he, I think, just had a hunch maybe that we should start digging around and seeing if there's something amiss. And Stephanie identified, she looked at a large number of data sets, public data, of course. And if you uh, follow the standard procedure, which is basically you have these counts, you're going to normalize them somehow. Maybe you convert them to transcripts per million, which is basically you divide the count for each gene by within a cell by the total counts of the cell. So you kind of convert it to a proportion and then multiply by a million. Um, that's, that's counts per million, but you could also sort of adjust for the gene length, uh, especially with a full-length protocol like SmartSeq. You want to take care of any bias, like longer transcripts being more likely to be overrepresented and things, GC bias and stuff like that. So um, if you have those normalized units like, like CPM or TPM, by the way, those normalizations came from bulk RNA-seq, so they, they were around for a long time. Then um, people want to apply PCA, but if you just straightforwardly apply PCA, PCA stands for Principal Components Analysis, and that is a very fast and um, you know, popular method for reducing the dimensionality from 20,000 genes or whatever to maybe you just reduce it to two dimensions so you can make a nice plot, like a scatter plot of all the cells, or you can reduce it to 10 or 50 dimensions if you want to do some clustering on the low-dimensional space. Even, by the way, um, T-SNE, T-Distributed Stochastic Neighbor Embedding, actually the standard implementation does a pre-dimension reduction f down to about 50 PCs um, before it even starts to run the actual T-SNE algorithm. So PCA is just everywhere. And the simple intuition behind PCA is that if you imagine your, uh, your cells, right, lying in this high-dimensional, like 20,000-dimensional space, uh, you find a low-dimensional space and sort of just geometrically project these points onto a, let's say, plane or hyperplane. And uh, PCA is basically finding such a plane that this projection is the most informative, right, you would say? Yeah, absolutely. And the key 
question is, what do you mean by informative? And the way PCA mathematically defines that is just simply using a Euclidean distance. So you look at sort of the sum of the squared Euclidean distances between the the actual points in the high-dimensional space and the projection of the point onto the low-dimensional um, uh, subspace. And, you know, then it's simply an optimization problem where you want to minimize this uh, mean squared error or sum of squared errors. Um, and it, it it's really a sort of Euclidean distance metric that's being... That, that is used to define uh, most informative. And so uh, you were saying that Stephanie ran PCA, right? And, and she noticed some correlations that she didn't perhaps expect to notice? Yeah, exactly. So every cell has the, the number of genes in the cell that, is, that are zero versus non-zero is generally not not thought to be biologically interesting. There may be some special cases like um, perhaps with developmental processes where you do expect stem cells to have more, just a larger number of genes um, active than a very specialized cell type that's further down the trajectory. Um, But if you're just looking at just a generic um, tissue and you want to find subtypes of cells, you're probably more interested in finding marker genes that um, kind of tag a certain cell type rather than just saying, oh, this is a cell type A where all the genes are turned on and cell type B has a fewer number of genes turned on. We don't care about the identity of the genes that are on or off. So that is kind of a, we would consider it sort of a nuisance um, it's a statistic that represents a kind of nuisance variation. Um, so when you apply normalization, your goal is to sort of remove a lot of those nuisance variations and uh, so that they won't contaminate the, the low-dimensional projection and, the, and things like differential expression and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, even with normalized data, uh, and by the way, she's also doing the standard thing of taking the log of one plus the counts, one plus the normalized counts. That was very widespread and still widespread um, transformation because of the skewness of the. And you have to add the pseudo count of one because you have so many exact zeros. You can't just take the log of zero because that's minus infinity. Right. So the the intuition behind that is that uh, PCA is sort of designed for normally distributed data. And so if your data doesn't look normally distributed, then you have to massage it in some ways to to make it look like normally distributed. And so the log transformation is like commonly used for that for no good reason, right? Uh, Just just because it happens to seem to work. (laughs) I think it works with bulk RNA-seq because you don't have very many exact zeros. Um, But there are many other transformations that have been considered, you know, variance-stabilizing transformations and um, ANSCOM. Well, I think that's the same thing, the ANSCOM transformation. But uh, the bottom line is all of these transformations are based on uh, an asymptotic um, uh, method called the delta method. And you assume a certain sampling distribution, and then you sort of um, you can get the mean and the variance of different transformations of that data. And you want to find a transformation that makes it so that the variance is independent of the mean. Um, so the normal distribution is 
one of the only distributions that um, the variance is not a function of the mean. Um, and that removing that uh, relationship, um, like you say, it makes the data more friendly for methods like PCA that are implicitly based on normal errors. Um, but what Stephanie found when she actually applied this, what I call the standard pipeline, um, was you would see uh, the first principal component, which is the dominant axis of variation in the data, was highly correlated with just the fraction of genes that were zero. And it's a very troubling result because it suggests that if you just run clustering on your low-dimensional space, you might find clusters that really have nothing to do with biology or it might inhibit, even if the biology is really strong, it might sort of muddy the waters and make it harder to be clear about what are different cell types and so on. Um, so that was really the motivation for for my work was to try to find an alternative to the so-called standard pipeline that would avoid these um, spurious you know, sources of variation showing up in the low-dimensional space. And I think one take on this phenomenon that I've heard is that people people are basically aware of this effect, and so what they would say is, you know, just just drop that first principal component because you know you you have a lot of principal components. There's no shortage of them, and if you know that this principal component is um, responsible for something that you don't care about, you just drop it and use, for example, the second, the third, and the fourth principal components. Um, so one might think that that's actually, you know, PCA working as it should. So it, it gives you a number of uncorrelated variables, new variables that describe your data set. And uh, you just try to re reverse engineer what the what those variables mean in terms of your in terms of the biology of your um, experiment and then you pick the ones that are interesting but but that that wasn't your take right you you saw this as a problem with the method itself sure well what you just suggested is actually the first thing that i tried um and it it does work in the sense that if the um, the technical, um, we were calling that at the time the detection rate. So the detection rate just meaning for each cell, what is the fraction of genes that are zero? Or sorry, the detection rate is one minus the, the zero fraction. Um, so how many genes were non-zero? Um, so yeah, the first thing I did was that, okay, if this is, this is uh, correlated with principal component number one, we know that PC2 is orthogonal to PC1 and, and so on down the line. So let's just, like you say, let's just sort of project off the bad part of the subspace and, you know, only focus on PCs two through, you know, seven or whatever. Um, but the problem with that is sometimes uh, the detection rate is actually correlated with all of the you know, top five principal components, every data set it's different. So um, in some data sets, in fact, the biology is very strong and um, biology is PC1 and then um, the this noisy stuff is coming in through PCs two and three and it's not a, a, a universal rule that it's always the first PC. Um, the, the point is more that it's in there, uh, you know, kind of messing things up and it, it doesn't always 
perfectly matched with one of the PCs that's removable. Um, so the next, you know, approach that we took to get around that was, well, you know, you can go into sort of the theory of linear algebra. You can say you've got this matrix of all these PCs, and you you can actually do a, a projection onto the uh, orthogonal complement, I guess is the technical name. You basically say that there's a subspace defined by this vector of detection rate, and there's the subspace that we actually have, and we want to sort of partition it into two orthogonal parts and then only look at the part that's um, that's not, uh, that has, th that will that will force the correlation between the resulting adjusted PCs to have zero, zero correlation with the thing that you don't want. And what it really boils down to is you're just regressing off. It's equivalent to doing a linear regression. Um, in fact, you can regress it off from the original data set, and it'll have the same result. Um, right. So, so you're you're sort of yeah. recognizing that um, the the PCA is not perfect; it has these flaws, and uh, it none of the principal components exactly captures this this nuisance parameter. So you guide it, right? You force it to to ignore that nuisance parameter. Yes. So we tried that, and you know, it it sort of solved the problem of the detection rate, um, you know, mathematically, right? But it was still bothering me a lot that there's nobody's really given a good justification of, you know, this log transformation, why we're putting in a pseudo count of one, all of that kind of stuff. Why do we go through all these gymnastics to um, make the data, you know, fit with PCA when? I mean, let's face it, the data is just not normally distributed. If you look at any histogram of single cell, it, it just really doesn't look at all remotely like a normal distribution, even after you do all the you know, transformations and so on. Yeah, and one, one obvious tell that it's not normally distributed is that it's discrete. So it, yes. strictly speaking, it cannot be, it just cannot be normally distributed. It cannot be generated by a you know, sampling from, from normal distribution. Right, right. But I would say that bulk RNA-seq is also discrete, but, you know, linear linear Gaussian um, methods for things like uh, differential expression are somewhat more successful with bulk RNA-seq than um, single cell. And I think it's because um, when you have a discrete distribution like a Poisson or a negative binomial, if the mean of that distribution gets really large, if the counts overall are pretty high and you don't have that many zeros and ones, the discreteness starts to kind of blur away, and there is, um, I mean, it's really just the central limit theorem that shows that a Poisson with a really large mean, it really could be well approximated by a Gaussian. So, I mean, there is some justification if the, if the counts are really high, then probably PCA would do just fine. And, you know, you could do your log transformation and adding a pseudo count of one won't matter because all the counts are really large. But if you have data, you know, like the single cell data where the vast majority, like 80, 90 or more percent of the genes are, are zero, um, and then you have a bunch of ones and a bunch of twos, and maybe you might see a, a 15 or a 20. Actually, I'm talking about UMI counts now, but the same basic idea goes with read counts. You have tons of, of zeros and low counts. Um, then that pseudo count really makes a huge distortion between all the zeros and all of the non-zeros. So it kind of introduces this artificial bimodality, which is 
really a result of the transformation and normalization as opposed to um, the data itself. So that sort of spurred us to think, can we just get rid of the whole apparatus and directly do uh, dimension reduction on the raw counts instead of trying to finesse things to make them fit the the PCA uh, desired input. And while uh, looking at the data, right, you noticed that uh, there are different types of data sets and they have different statistical properties. And we're talking about the, the presence or absence of uh, unique molecular identifiers. Uh, so can, can you explain what UMIs are and uh, how exactly they affect the statistical properties of the data set? Sure. So early single-cell RNA-seq data mostly did not have unique molecular identifiers or UMIs. Um, there were some UMI data early on, but I think the they didn't really take off until the droplet protocols like DropSeq, InDrops, and uh, especially 10x genomics, um, which came a little later, allowing um, people to analyze thousands of cells instead of hundreds. But what a UMI is, is basically just a little barcode that, um, that identifies what molecule, uh, what unique molecule, um, different reads originated from. So um, read counts are the end result of polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which takes the small amount of RNA, or really cDNA, complementary DNA, which comes from RNA, um, and amplifies it to, to a large enough quantity that can, that can be sequenced, because these single cells have such a small amount of, of starting material. So what that does is it takes the original molecules and it just copies them over and over and over again. Uh, so you could end up with a situation where a particular gene or transcript is represented by hundreds of read counts that all originated from, you know, one or two or three uh, actual molecules. So the PCR really distorts the data quite a bit. Um, and being able to remove those PCR duplicates is a I consider a major innovation in single-cell RNA-seq. Um, and I just really want to give a shout-out to the hardworking folks in the wet lab, wet labs all over the place who are really doing great innovation. And I, I think their innovation matters a lot more um, sometimes than uh, these computational tricks that people like me are trying to come up with. So I have a lot of respect for for the work they're doing. And I'm very grateful that they were able to make the data so much cleaner with the invention of these UMIs. So the characteristics of read count data are you still have a lot of zeros because if you have zero molecules um, you know, captured or at the end of the reverse transcriptase step or just that there were zero molecules in the original cell, uh, no matter how many times you multiply zero, you still have zero. So the zeros are not affected by, by PCR. But all the non-zero stuff, the ones and the twos, get amplified, amplified, amplified to be really large. So if you look at read count data, such as that from SmartSeq2 or any number of other read count protocols, 
um, they really look uh, zero inflated. You see this sort of distribution that's sort of a log normal uh, or a, maybe a negative binomial or something, and then that's the non-zero component, and then you have a big spike at zero. So historically, uh, a lot of the methods developers um, focused on these sort of zero inflated models, and I myself also developed a, a zero inflated, very computationally complex um, Bayesian hierarchical model that we called varying censoring aware matrix factorization. Um, which was just really clunky and and it was too much. Um, but we felt like we needed to have all of these zero inflation mechanisms to to address the um, the big spike at zero and the read counts. Um, but after that, uh, uh, Riso and several others came out with ZINB Wave, which was a much better implemented um, dimension reduction that included zero inflation and. After we saw the ZINB wave paper, we felt like, well, we really should just abandon this VAMP uh, method because they've they've done a much better job, and we really learned a lot from from that paper. Um, they also were very uh, creative to find a way to include covariates as well as dimension reduction in a simultaneous model, which was really impressive. Um, but we started looking at the newer data sets, the unique molecular identifier counts. And we noticed that first, they still had the problem of the correlation between detection rate and the, the first PC if you analyzed it with principal component analysis. Um, so Stephanie's insight was still valid for the UMI counts. Um, but what I noticed was if you look at the the distributions, they they don't really have the, the zero inflation. Um, they just sort of look like a over-dispersed Poisson. And the easiest way to see it was to look at negative control data. And just as we were starting to look into these negative control data sets um, where you just have spike ins or you just have one purified cell type and you don't expect any um, heterogeneity due to different cell types, um, Valentine Svensson came out with a really influential blog post where he claimed that droplet single cell RNA-seq, which implicitly has unique molecular identifiers, um, was not zero-inflated. And it was a very, I want to say, controversial blog post, and he convinced me 100%. I, I found it very persuasive, and I think he did a great job. I think that blog post recently got published in a, like in a journal. If people thought that uh, you know blog posts don't count, well, then uh, you you can actually cite that paper in in your papers. Yes, and I'm proud to say I may have had a very small role in that. I was not a reviewer or anything, but um, when we started to uh, write up our paper for publication. I wanted to cite Valentine's blog post, but we didn't really know if we could, if the journal would accept a blog post citation. <laughs> so I contacted Valentine and asked him to please convert it into a bioarchive preprint so that I could at least have something to cite. Um, and I don't know if that's what led down the path to it getting published, but I'm, I'm sure I did. <laughs> I'm happy that that uh, he got the recognition for it that he deserves. So, yeah. So I think that 
pretty much summarizes the problem that we were trying to solve. Okay, and and so if we don't have zero inflation for UMI data, then uh, we could apply something like Zimbi Wave that you mentioned, right? Uh, and just maybe disable that uh, zero inflation component there, right? Yes, that's right. So um, ZNB Wave is a very general model. Um, it's very sophisticated and has a lot of parameters. So for a while, I thought, I don't really need to work on this problem anymore because ZNB Wave has solved everything. But one issue, with, there's just a couple of issues with ZNB Wave. First of all, um, it's rather slow. And I think part of the slowness was due to the fact that it's it's trying to solve the problem of dimension reduction for both the read counts and the UMI counts. So it's sort of this omnibus approach. And we really felt that we could make some at least incremental improvements um, by focusing just on UMI counts because those were becoming very popular. And we thought that we could come up with a simpler algorithm that would be a lot more scalable. And another concern that we had was um, the factors that ZINB Wave was producing are not really as interpretable as the factors from principal component analysis. And the reason is because they have two different loadings matrices. And the way to order these latent dimensions in a linear dimension reduction, like ZINB wave, um, is you want to sort of rotate the loadings and make them orthonormal. Um, and then that, that makes it so that the the factors are sort of in decreasing order of, of importance. Um, but ZNB Wave was not able to do that because of their, their sort of double likelihood. Um, so that was another area we felt that we could make a contribution um, and give a result that uh, took the, the crucial aspects of ZNB Wave uh, but gave people a result that was a lot faster and more interpretable in a way very similar to, to PCA. Um, so I really want to give credit to Riso et al. because ZNB Wave was a major, major innovation. Um, but we, we did uh, decide to, to try our hand at writing our own dimension reduction. And um, I think the accuracy of ZNB waves never really in question, um, but uh, it's just a, a little bit slow and not quite as interpretable. But it is very similar to, uh, to our approach. Okay, so, so you set out to recreate something like uh, Zimbi Wave and also something like PCA, maybe take the best of, of, uh, of the two worlds. And uh, how, how did you manage to do that exactly? Well, we basically just focused on the fact that PCA is really assuming implicitly a, a Gaussian or normal distribution for the errors. Um, and we, we really were convinced, based on the negative control data, that um, something like either a Poisson or a negative binomial, like a discrete distribution, would be more appropriate for uh, an error model. Um, so we just simply said, well, what is the optimization problem that, that regular PCA solves? 
And can we just swap out the Gaussian likelihood with the Poisson likelihood? Um, and it's really pretty straightforward if you have a familiarity with um, generalized linear models in a regression context because linear regression is a generalized linear model where you assume a normal distribution for the errors. And um, you can have a Poisson GLM where you have a Poisson likelihood. You can have a negative binomial GLM. So we just basically took that exact approach and transferred it from the regression context to the um, unsupervised dimension reduction context and spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to optimize that objective function. I do not claim that we have found the perfect best algorithm for optimization, but we found one that seemed to work well enough on our uh, assessment data sets and on our simulations and things like that. So, um, you know, we we put our, we call it GLM PCA, um, generalized linear model PCA or generalized PCA. And um, after we implemented it, we, I was uh, informed by, um, I think it was actually um, Dr. Inglehart, um, Barbara Inglehart, who is my current postdoc advisor. I think she was the one that told me, oh, by the way, you know, this, this is really similar to something that's been done years ago in the machine learning uh, computer science literature. So I went back and cited, uh, I believe Collins was the author. I don't remember the year, um, but he called it exponential family PCA. Um, we're, we're not exactly copying what he did because he only used a natural link function, so he was not able to do um, negative binomial likelihoods, which don't usually use the natural link. Um, and also his method did not allow adjustment for covariates or offsets or that sort of thing. So we brought some of those ideas over from ZINB Wave. And, um, you know, we're really not trying to say that we were the first person to invent um, generalized PCA, but more our, our paper is really more trying to advocate for people in, to just change the mentality from how can we convert our data into something that looks Gaussian and instead focus on let's let's actually model um, what's going on with the with the errors and the biases rather than trying to normalize them away. I think that's really the main message that we want to put out there um, rather than t claiming that we've um, just we were the first ones to come up with some amazing dimension reduction. Um, but we're happy for folks to use our, our method if they like it and give us feedback. Uh, it's uh, available as a R package on CRAN and also a Python package on PyPy. Um, and we're currently um, working on a bioconductor package that will allow it to interface with single cell experiment objects and, and things like that. Perfect. And uh, if people want to know a bit more about what's going under the hood there, um, but uh, maybe not are not familiar with the GLMs, generalized linear models. Can you can you give a brief primer on what what that means? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd really like to recommend a textbook that I've found helpful for learning about GLMs, which was uh, Alan Agresti. It's called Foundations of Linear and Generalized Linear Models. Agresti's known as a very good teacher. 
I believe he's retired now, but um, this is just a great textbook. Um, you know, you do need to have some familiarity with probably calculus and linear algebra to uh, to grasp most of it. It's not. It's a good mix, I would say, of uh, theory and application. Um, but my my description of GLMs would be they sort of have three primary components. Um, one is just the likelihood, which is it really is essentially the loss function that you're going to use for your optimization. So how do you quantify the difference between the data and what your predictions of the data are? Do you just take the mean squared error, or do you use some other kind of possibly asymmetric divergence metric um, to, to quantify this uh, discrepancy? And this notion of a loss function is really more popular in the uh, computer science literature, the machine learning literature, but it's actually an exact one-to-one um, analogy with the statistical concept of a likelihood and maximizing the likelihood. So, um, for example, I've already mentioned that the Gaussian or normal distribution likelihood, um, maximizing that likelihood and finding the, the maximum likelihood estimator, which is a statistical uh, estimator for the underlying parameters of the distribution, is exactly equivalent to minimizing the mean squared error between your predicted mean of your data and the, the data itself. Um, and in machine learning, there's also a notion of Kullback-Leibler. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, or Leibler. Um, Kullback-Leibler divergence, uh, which is a popular metric or divergence. It's not actually a metric in mathematical sense, but it's a it's sort of a divergence, which is like a uh, a distance metric that doesn't have to be symmetric. Um, but that. It, you know, is popular in, for example, non-negative matrix factorization. Um, and it's it's exactly equivalent to maximizing the likelihood under a Poisson um, error model. So um, anytime you hear somebody talk about a loss function, uh, cross-entropy loss in neural networks is just a, um, a Bernoulli, a Bernoulli logit um, uh, likelihood. So um, it's I find it helpful to think in terms of probability distributions and hierarchical models, but that may just be from my statistics training. Um, but if you prefer to think of loss functions, that's certainly an, an, another f- conceptual framework. But the bottom line is, whatever you want to call it, the the resulting estimator or the resulting uh, parameter value that you saw from your optimization is, is should be the same. Uh, of course, these Problems are often non-convex, and you may you may not get the actual exact same solution, but the the problem trying to be solved is the same problem. Right. So I think at different times in your uh, method development, you want to take different perspectives on this, right? So once you have the likelihood, then you go into this optimization perspective where you just treat it as a loss function. You find the set of parameters that uh, maximize uh, the likelihood. But when you are designing your model, you probably take the statistical perspective, right? Because if you just think about this as a loss function, well, then how do I choose my loss function? I would choose something convenient like a, a minimal sum of squared errors. 
And uh, if you take the statistical perspective, then you sort of think about what process might have generated the data and therefore what statistical properties the data might have. Absolutely, yeah. So that that's really where I think, uh, and this is something I want to give credit to my advisor, my PhD advisor, Rafa Irizari. Um, he really encouraged me to try to get into the data and make histograms and pretty much never went to see him in his office without making a lot of graphs. Um, <laughs> and a lot of statisticians and even machine learning people, unfortunately, there's sort of an incentive to try to come up with the most complex model and try to impress people with a lot of fancy math stuff, um, which is important. Theory is definitely important. It's the, the ground that we stand on. But um, when you're dealing with a lot, you have a lot of data, a lot of public data, like this genomics. We always, you know, can go to Geo and download all kinds of stuff. Why not look at it and why not make some histograms and try to use exploratory data analysis to inform our choice of loss function or our choice of of likelihood? Um, and I do find it it easier to look at a histogram and say, oh, this looks like a Poisson distribution. Okay, so I should probably use a Poisson likelihood, and that corresponds to, you know, this mathematical formula, and now I have my loss function, and I know what I want to optimize. Um, so that was sort of the approach that we took, um, rather than starting from a highly theoretical, um, you know, perspective and coming up with the most complicated model we could and proving all kinds of theorems, we we try to be, I believe the term is problem forward. I'm probably saying it wrong. It's not problem forward, solution backward. But the point is that you start with a problem. You start with some data and, and explore it and figure out what's going on with an open mind and then uh, bring some statistical skills or some machine learning skills to bear on the problem rather than trying to create a new method and then go looking for uh, a problem to solve with the method, which may not even exist. <laughs> okay. So uh, we sort of addressed the generalized part of generalized linear models, and that's the part where you're free or almost free to choose the likelihood or the distribution for your data. And I think you're, you chose the negative binomial distribution for your uh, UMI count data. But... Um, uh, Let's uh, let's transition to the linear part. So why why is there a linear part there? Sure. Well, I've only mentioned one of the three components of a GLM. So the first component is the likelihood. Um, the second component I'll just quickly mention and gloss over is the link function, which uh, connects the um, the mean to uh, the last part, which is the linear predictor. So the linear predictor in a regression model is you have a bunch of um, covariates and you have your regression coefficients and that's the covariates are usually like some big matrix X and the coefficients are a vector beta and you know X beta is a linear predictor. Um, and typically that linear predictor is going to be real valued because your covariates could be, any kind of variable. So, and the coefficients can can be any uh, real number. So that um, linear predictor is uh, could be positive, negative. It's not discrete. It's just continuous. Um, but then, if the let's say you're using a Poisson or negative binomial likelihood, 
um, what you want to do is have this linear predictor um, be the thing that determines the mean of that uh, likelihood. Um, so the problem, you can't directly equate the two because X beta it could take on any number, but the mean of a negative binomial and the mean of a Poisson has to be um, greater than zero. So you need to have a function, a deterministic function that maps from the reals to the um, whatever the space that the mean can take on. And for Poisson and negative binomial, it's convenient to use um, just the exponential function. In fact, that is what's called the natural link for the Poisson. Using the natural link um, basically just simplifies a lot of the computations. Um, and sometimes it makes the interpretation easier, but it's not strictly necessary. Um, negative binomial, uh, the log is not, or the exponential is not the natural link function, um, but we use it anyway because it's more, um, makes things a little more interpretable and um, actually it solves a problem of the dispersion parameter being intertwined with the link function, which I don't want to go into. But um, if it turns out if you use a Gaussian a likelihood, then the uh, the link function ends up just being uh, the identity function because the mean of a Gaussian can be any real number, and so you don't you don't really need a link function for that. Um, but for any other likelihood, um, you know, gamma distribution or uh, Bernoulli distribution, you you need a function that will sort of squash the real valued linear predictor and map it to the to the mean. Um, so um, I do want to mention one other thing about GLM-PCA. So I, I met someone prior to developing this method at a conference. Um, his name is Justin Silverman, and he is a very um, talented researcher in the microbiome field. I believe he's starting as an assistant professor in Penn State. But I had a great conversation with him um, that really inspired me to think about the, the idea of a multinomial model, um, which we haven't really gone into in much detail, but um, I think due to time, I'll probably just say um, we do discuss the properties of multinomial models um, in detail in our paper, but um, it's not like we just went straight to the Poisson and straight to the negative binomial. We really wanted to... Um, we really were convinced that um, the true distribution of these UMI counts is actually uh, multinomial. Even though it looks like a Poisson, um, the data really only contain relative information rather than absolute. So if you have one cell where the total count is 100 and another cell where the total count is 500, you can't really directly compare counts of a particular gene across those cells. So that's really the reason why people are doing normalization. They're converting from absolute units to relative units. And um, so we wanted to include that um, notion of modeling the relative data rather than absolute counts in our, um, our model, which we basically claim is GLMPCA, we claim is an approximation to a multinomial model. It's not a true multinomial model. And I would, I would list um, latent Dirichlet allocation as a, an example of a true multinomial model. But we just found that um, the discrete approximation to it that was a lot more computationally tractable, we felt was fairly reasonable for single-cell RNA-seq data. Um, it may not be reasonable for 
um, my, microbial data, which we have not investigated. Um, but that's a fascinating topic, I think, that others have looked into. I believe uh, Riso and uh, Levi Waldron had a paper um, where they compared some of the techniques from single cell and, and metagenomics to see um, whether tools from one field could be transferred back and forth to another. So that's something that I would encourage folks to to study. And I think uh, Tom Quinn was on your program and talked about compositional data. So that's sort of the, the, the multinomial is a uh, discrete compositional likelihood if you really care about um, that uh, relative data versus absolute data. Right. So you, you could say uh, somewhat, somewhat correctly that uh, in, in the same sense that a Gaussian distribution or normal distribution is an approximation to, say, Poisson distribution, in the same way you can approximate the multinomial um, distribution with a set of binomial distributions. This is like a tower of approximations, right? You can approximate <laughs> multinomial with binomial, then you approximate binomial with Poisson, then you approximate Poisson with normal. Exactly. That, that is exactly what people are doing when they apply normalization. And normalization is actually maximum likelihood estimation of multinomial parameters. Um, the, the parameters are the, the proportions of, uh, of each gene within the overall counts and just the total count. So um, in terms of math, the approximation of a multinomial, which is a joint distribution over all the genes, which is the reason it's so computationally intractable, um, by independent Poisson distributions, which is just modeling the error for each gene separately and ignoring the, the big correlation between all of them that they have to sum up to a, a constant, um, it, that's a, a reasonable approximation if the total count is very large and if no one gene totally dominates uh, over all the others. So in my experience, you would pretty much never expect to see one gene with more than even 10% of the total counts. I mean, certainly having one gene that constitutes 50% of the total counts in a cell seems pretty far-fetched. Um, that may not be a far-fetched assumption for microbial data. I, I could imagine that some of those data, you could have one microbial strain that, that constituted more than 50% of the sample. And once you get to that level, the um, intrinsic, it's an anti-correlation actually between all of the other strains and that strain uh, starts to really matter and starts to distort the uh, the results if you ignore it. But I think with the single cell data, and and probably Silverman might, um, I think he would disagree with me on this. But I'm just going to say what I think. I think it's okay to assume the the Poisson or the negative binomial approximation. Um, I don't think it's okay to assume a normal approximation to the Poisson because um, there's too many zeros and ones and the data are too discrete. I think that approximation only works if not just the total count is large, but all of the counts are large. Um, so with bulk RNA-seq, it might be okay, but with single cell, I, that's where I draw the line. Okay. And uh, in, the, in the remaining minutes, um, I, I'm really uh, interested in... Uh, 
in this secret sauce uh, behind GLM PCA, which is the the combination of the two, right? Because GLMs have existed for, for a long time, and you you named a relatively recent textbook. There are certainly like older textbooks on GLMs, on generalized linear models, and PCA ha- has existed for a long time, but um, you sort of combined the two and you move GLMs from a regression problem to this uh, dimensionality reduction problem, or uh, in machine learning, they call this unsupervised learning problem. So what's what's the, the secret sauce there? Um, well, you have your loss function, right? So that's um, a function of the data and the, the mean, the predicted mean. And then um, you can write out that that function. Uh, then you just say the mean is defined as the the link function applied to the linear predictor, and the linear predictor is just these two low rank matrices, just like you know any other linear dimension reduction. I call them U and V. Um, so if you have a high dimensional data, you could have one matrix that has the big dimension being the number of features, and then a small dimension being the number of latent factors, and then a separate matrix, which is number of latent factors by number of observations, and then sort of the outer product of those two low-rank matrices gives you um, a matrix that's the same size as your data, which is the linear predictor that then is a function of... um, that, that then is passed through the link function to give the predicted mean. Um, so it's it's just like um, any other, you know, people doing neural networks or whatever, you have this notion of layers. Um, and essentially, this could be thought of as a one-layer neural network where you don't have any, uh, you don't have any activation relu functions or whatever. You just have a linear predictor and then that thing passes through a single link function that goes into the to the loss um, and it certainly would be possible to solve this using a, a PyTorch or a, any number of automatic differentiation libraries um, but we just went ahead and solved it by hand um, and and implemented it in plain R and plain Python so I'm sure if other folks out there are interested in optimization they'd be welcome to take the idea of GLMPCA and try their own implementation. Um, and I, th- I would not be surprised if they could come up with a better implementation than what we did because we're more statisticians than, uh, than you know, engineers. Um, and we actually do hope to improve it ourselves. Um, if, if nobody else beats us to it, we're hoping to make it work, you know, with many batches of data so it doesn't have to load the whole data set into memory and things like that, which would facilitate working with larger um, larger data sets. So I think the, the connection to GLMs is that in, in a GLM, um, inside this link function, you have a linear combination of your parameters and your predictors, right, your covariates. And what you did in order to make it unsupervised is to make both of them your parameters, right? So you don't have any covariates, but you say, you know, we have parameters, we have covariates that are also parameters that we also hope to to infer via this optimization. Yes, that's exa- exactly right. So in a regression context, we have the matrix X of our covariates and another, ma- um, either a vector or a matrix if it's multivariate. 
um, of unknown parameters, but you know the covariate values, so those are fixed. But in a dimension reduction context, we, we actually don't know the value of x either. So um, you sort of have two different types of parameters that are multiplied together to give the result. And that's what makes it um, non-convex. That's what makes it so hard to solve. Um, if we did know the latent factors, it would be easy to solve for the loadings. And if we know the loadings, it would be easier to solve for the latent factors. But um, fortunately, unfortunately, we don't know either. And that's why we have to, um, we have to solve this really difficult non-convex optimization problem. And so um, another uh, popular dimensionality reduction tool for single cell uh, data, which we also discussed on this podcast, is uh, SCVI. Uh, so do you have any thoughts about how your method compares to SCVI and when one might choose GLMPCA versus SCVI or vice versa? I, I love SCVI. I think it's a great idea. I think they've done a great job, uh, Lopez and et al. Um, I know Adam Gayoso also worked a lot on it. I met him recently. Um, they've, they've done a great job, and I would recommend that method. Um, I think the reason why um, well, the distinction between our method and Zion B-Wave and SCVI is SCVI is a nonlinear dimension reduction. It's based on a variational autoencoder. Um, and so you get nonlinear factors. There's no orthonormal rotation. There's no um, necessary ordering of the factors and decreasing magnitude of, of influence. Um, you can certainly encode more information with fewer dimensions with a nonlinear uh, manifold compared to a linear one. Um, so I think it it's really dependent on what your goal. If you're open-minded about a new type of dimension reduction, um, which I think would definitely be more principled than something like TSNE or um, possibly UMAP, uh, I think uh, SCVI could be a great choice. Uh, however, if you are working with collaborators who really want to be able to interpret things in a manner very similar to PCA, if they're accustomed to looking at PCA plots, uh, they want to know about things like variance explained and, and that sort of thing, um, I think our method could be more appropriate in that context. Um, and um, also I would just mention that um, Svensson has sort of come up with a way of hybridizing the SCVI method with a linear um, dimension reduction. So he, he had a small preprint called linearly decoded um, autoencoder or something like that and basically replaced the nonlinear decoder part of, of SCVI with a linear decoder, which um, is interpretable in a way very similar to ZNB Wave or uh, GLMPCA. So um, there's just a lot of great methods out there, and I've, I think it's good that folks uh, can choose whichever one is most suitable for their their team and their collaborators. And um, ultimately, we're all trying to make it easier to analyze these data and come up with ways of uh, eventually curing diseases. So that's one thing that I'm very grateful to ha have the opportunity to be in this field. Cool. Well, uh, it was a very interesting conversation, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Roman, and um, I look forward to hearing more episodes from your future guests. <laughs> <laughs>